0: Hello and welcome to this week's uh, What's Next webinar brought to you by Ogilvy Consulting. Uh, this week we'll be talking uh, customer expectations uh, with two uh, team members from our uh, experience design group here at Ogilvy London. Uh, we're happy to have uh, all of you join us today. Um, as you will see, uh, we'll have Lau and Dickin. they'll be the ones presenting, and Dajuan, I, that's me, I'll be hosting the webinar and interjecting. With very uh, smart and uh, thoughtful questions. <laughs> okay,
1: thanks, Deshwan. Uh, hi, everybody. My name is and Laws. Um, I'm taking you through the first part of today's uh, webinar. Um, joined by my colleague Lau, as Dejuan mentioned, um, it will be a jumping-off point about halfway. We'll take you through some of his thoughts around the topic. Um, we're breaking the topic down today of great expectations um, into kind of six parts, um, and just briefly running you through that. So. I think where we are with great expectations at the moment is that we kind of customer experience is a really important topic, but it kind of gets chewed out a lot, right. There's a lot of, there's a lot of conversation around it and the, the value and the, the impact of it as a meaning within organizations and business sometimes get eroded. So what we're doing today is kind of looking at a couple of different um, ways of thinking about it, a couple of reframes, a couple of refreshes, if you like. We're going to start by talking about um, uh, looking at the value customers place on experience um, and looking at through the lens of kind of how economic uh, models have grown over the, over the decade. And that's not going to be, that's going to be like a five minute gig, right? It's not going to take long for us to take you through that before anyone worries that the history of economic progress might be, you might still be here tomorrow. Um, great expectation gap will explain a little more about what we mean by that and the, and the modeling of it and how it works. Um, we'll take you through the impact of poor expectation gaps or big expectation gaps and the impact it has uh, on your customers and notionally what that is defined by in terms of experience debt and negative, negative experience equity. Talk to you a little bit about what drives that gap and ways of avoiding it. Um, Lau's going to take a little bit to talk about you know one of our specialities here you know, the behavioral um, principles or triggers that drive it or can avoid it. And then we're gonna do a little, very short unashamed plug at the end to talk to you about how we can help if any of these things are on your desks at the moment and need some support with. So I said a minute ago that customer experience isn't a new topic. You know, this webinar deals with it a, a great deal. Um, so really what we're doing today is, is remixing two established truths within that customer experience field. One is that, as we know, good customer experience costs less than bad customer experience. You know, they've gone to the days where people are saying that I'm not gonna invest in my customer experience because quite frankly it's expensive to do that sort of transformation. But the reality is that it's dawning on most businesses and most brands, that the lack of doing it is actually more cost, more effective in terms of the loss that is uh, potentially gonna face you if you don't invest in it. And the other one is that consumers now place more value in satisfying experiences and satisfying products, which might seem strange because ultimately, you know, products are still there and products are still there, um, you know, it's satisfying and in demand. But we'll tell you a bit about how that relates to the experience economy. So, we're kind of remixing those two thoughts today as we go through the presentation. And the first one, as I mentioned, is a very brief history of economic progress through the lens of a birthday cake, which I will explain to you. So, if you look at and we, when we go into this, we're really thinking about um, the value customers place on the relationship they have with products and services. So if we look at the first kind of era of really kind of defined economics, it was the commodity age, okay? This is where you know everyone knows kind of what a commodity is. It's stuff that comes out of the ground, it's not processed, it's pretty straightforward. And if you look at a birthday cake, which you'll see smartly, this ladders up into a birthday cake. That back in the day, mum and dad used to make birthday cakes for their kids on their birthdays using, you know, traditional means flour, sugar, butter, eggs. You know, they'd they mix it themselves and those three commodities would be things they'd purchase. But then you went up from the commodity economy into the goods economy, where the world changed and, you know, a bit more, a bit more capitalistic kind of automation took over and people realized they didn't need to make these things from scratch, they could just buy it, they could buy Betty Crocker. You know, they, they went from a commodity economy to a goods economy. And if you go one stage up from that, you get into the service economy, where mum and dad no longer making it, no longer buying the mixing, they're just ordering it online and getting it delivered from the store. So you kind of start to see the value that is being placed by consumers and by customers on the way the economy is shaping these, these industries. And the final one, which we're kind of in the, in the, in the mix of now is the experience economy. And this is where mum and dad, they don't make it, they don't buy it, they don't order it, they outsource the entire birthday experience to the local soft play area, the local discovery world, uh, and let their kids get on with it, and just happens to be a free cake included with it too, which is great. So you can see that the way that the value of goods has been placed by customers and consumers on, on, on the way the brand service things has grown and changed. And the experience economy is now a place where satisfying experiences, you know, it could be argued to be more important to customers than satisfying products and the way that's evolved and changed. So that's kind of the brief history of the economic. And we, we talk about it because reality is that experience is now really really valuable, and that experience can really help um, you know brands build trust. So now, if they don't do that experience in the right way, and they don't manage client expectations in the right way, then that trust becomes a problem. And we're in the business of building brands. Everybody involved in this conversation on the webinar has building brands at heart, and certainly Overby does, you know, our, our single-minded philosophy is to make brands matter. But if we look at these two scales, I wanna just show you kind of an illustration of things in, a, in a, an honest sense. So where we are the there, you've got the left-hand scale is, is normally an experience scale. So you go from a frustrating experience up to a really meaningful one. And conversely, on the trust scale, you go from unquestioned loyalty for a, for a brand or a service or a business, through to kind of complete pessimism about the fact that it's probably gonna be a rubbish experience every time you engage with them. So and they correspond broadly. I mean, some of this stuff is, you know, is taking some leaps of liberty with some established kind of hierarchy models. But bear with me. So if you think about it from this perspective, so when a a brand makes a promise and sets an expectation of the experience with its consumers, it kind of exists here. Right. It never it always says it's going to be the fastest, best, cheapest, wickedest experience you're ever going to have. So you're kind of at the top of that pyramid always, right? You're in a meaningful, pleasurable place. And the idea is that through that meaning, through that pleasure, your trust in the brand is going to be unquestionable. It's going to be habitual, right? That's where most communications work. You know, most brand work wants to take them. They never really state in, in, in there that really where you're going to end up is kind of halfway up there. And actually, we know that you know most people inside businesses are happy to be there. The reality is, and we know from Forbes, from a recent study, but 26% of employees um, know that their business doesn't really deliver on their brand promise. And actually, if you ask a lot of clients, they'll say, "You know, we, we know, and actually to get there and operate there, it's quite safe and it's achievable. So they've already got a gap between what you promised and what the reality is. But the, the, the compound effect of the, of the experience economy at the moment is that you've got another factor you've got an ever-increasing ever precedence of other people's experience they have in every walk of life, which means that what you think is acceptable for your customers, they probably don't think is acceptable anymore because they've been working with Uber and Airbnb and all these other amazing disruptors for years now. And they know that the frame of reference what good stands for is different. So really, if you think about it, you've got a gap between where your promise is made to your customer and the place they expect you to be in, there's quite a distance now. And we talk about that as the expectation gap. And the broader that is, the more trust is an issue, the more trust is an issue, the more you erode your brand value, and then you're decreasing your growth and decreasing your value as a business. So just to really put a pin on it, expectation gap by definition is the distance between customer expectation of a product or a service and the reality of experiencing it. And that is a dynamic shifting landscape now. It used to be static, it used to be if you missed the mark, that was just on you. Now the, your competition are actually responsible for how that expectation gap grows because they're setting the expectation of the presidents. So you've got to keep up with them. So trust is a, trust is a massive issue. Um, we know globally that trust in uh, consumer trust in NGOs, in businesses, in brands is on decline. Um, in the UK as an example, I mean globally it's, a, it's decreasing by 10% year on year and it has done for the past decade and the UK is down minus one, and the US is like minus nine. Oddity in the mix is in the, you know, the one exception to the rule um, is, is, is the Far East and China where it's increasing. But generally it's, it's collapsing. So closing that expectation gap becomes harder because the trust is, is eroding day by day. So it becomes even more important. So we look at um, evidence to support this. So you gotta kind of look back just two years at the top 10 brands kind of globally. Um, you know, with a very Western steer, but still global. And you look at them and you think, well, kind of most of those guys have probably got quite good service experiences. We know Apple does, we know Google does, arguably Amazon does, depending if you like them or not. Netflix, you know, there's a, there's a couple of guys in there that probably stand out, right? Samsung, John Lewis, Disney. Is their total CX um, as strong as it could be? And then if you fly forward, into 2018, you kind of see that the, the landscape's changed. So the recent pulse on top 10 brands globally, you still see the heavy hitters in there, the Apples, the Googles of the world, but you've got some strange anomalies sitting in there, right? You've got Lego, you've got Fitbit, and in the UK, you've got the NHS. Now, Lego is, you know, Lego is Lego, right? I mean, they have to do quite a lot wrong for you to get the expectation of what you're gonna have one of their products bad, I and then mean, their bricks and the endearing factor about them, whatever property they invest in, whether it be films, games, you know, theaters, landscapes, whatever it needs to be, you know, they're still Lego. You still have bricks. So their expectation is consistent. And in a world where your expectations are important, your experience is a problem, They've risen up through the ranks. They're number two now. Fitbit, I would argue, you know, for a long time, probably uh, the underdog behind other wearables, you know, potentially behind the Apple Watch for a few years. But the reality is, once you get it and the experience it offers beyond the product is first class, and it's like it's rising up through the ranks. NHS, the National Health Service, God bless it in the UK. You know, that is something that's been under the cosh for years now, and really quite surprising maybe to some that it sits in the top ten brands, um, certainly in the UK but it's reinvested millions and millions in its digital infrastructure and its digital services. So the expectation people have on it is increasing day by day, but its service and the ability for people to self-diagnose, self-serve, self-prescript their own solutions is, is, is coming to the fore, and now they're, now they're huge. So you can start to see that this experience economy and the value people place in it and the expectation gap is really, really important. And if you're not hitting those things, then you're gonna be kind of going back to the John Lewis and the Disney's. now recognize that Disney about to do some amazing stuff with their their live streaming stuff, so you're gonna see a whole new world emerge there, so they might come back up. But for now, they're not there. Well, they're in the top 20, but they're not in the top 10. So, the cost of missing your landing. So, if you look at this simple runway, you've got a point A where the brand promises. So, whatever the customer engagement point is, whatever the promise is that your creative or your brand proposition gives to the customer, that's your starting point. And typically, the customer expects to do this. They expect to leapfrog over into a place they recognize, a place of safety, their customer experience reality is, is managed. It's their expectation. But you've got to balance that quite finely these days, because if you do too many other things, you can, you can mess it up. So, if you do this, if you over trajectory is steeper because your promise and your, your promise is steep and it's amazing and it's really engaging but you burn quickly and you drop down early and you underdeliver. so you're already kind of causing yourself to be um, on the back foot and there is an, and I talked about this earlier and everybody probably knows this quote because I think at Ogilvy we're pretty, we're pretty popular about saying this and repeating it because you think it has great resonance that the last best experience that anyone has anywhere becomes the minimum expectation they have for it uh, and as a result, you know, you've got to worry about this stuff. So the precedence is quite strong. And if you set a precedence curve, then you've got a whole new dynamic altogether. You know, you've got the best experience that is good, what's gonna set it. And you're gonna be under, if you don't invest and constantly think about how you're changing your experience, you're gonna be missing it. So the expectation gap becomes a two-way thing. You've got the distance between how you under-deliver versus expectations, and you've now got to worry about what the competition are doing in terms of changing the benchmark and the where the where the baseline is for this sort of stuff. So you've got two elements of the expectation gap. You've got what we've always had, what we dub the expectation debt, which is the debt a brand owes you from the promise they've made to you to the reality of where you go to, and you've also got a second dynamic, which is what we what we notionally have termed negative experience equity, obviously borrowed from the housing market where your value of your mortgage is supersedes the value of your property because it's depreciated. But in, a, in, a, in this world, what you're doing is you are set, the customer has an expectation of your, and that's effectively your mortgage value, but the market is moving ahead. You know, you're changing the value of that relationship. So we call it the negative experience equity. And it's really, really important to keep an eye on those things because they, they, it's two different dynamics to really change the value of your business and the relationship with the customers, ultimately your growth. So just kind of very quickly, if that hasn't quite landed, I wanted to put some thoughts together on who we recognize as being sinners and saints in this landscape. So in terms of demonstrators, I think that, you know, uh, Monza as a digital bank are uh, flying high at the moment. Huge amounts of growth. Huge amounts of popularity in the UK. UK. Yeah, it is a UK business. But ultimately, you know, there are digital banks in most of the westernized markets at the moment, whether it be Atom Bank or or others as well. Um, You know, in in the UK, they're huge. And they are really, really good at managing their expectation gap on a daily basis. They, as a, as a digital only app bank, uh, you know, they are very transparent with their customer base about how they're gonna release their products, what features they'll do, and they let, they crowdsource those features with customers in real time. Very transparent, probably more transparent than any other kind of design process any other brand ever runs, even more than like, and some, some of the ones that are notorious for it. So they've got, they're always managing their expectation gap. You know, they're always making sure they're exciting their customers and then helping them deliver on that excitement and pushing the envelope all the time. Now, forgive me, but I think a debtor in my world is Microsoft. I think they are, they challenge themselves to innovate and push the envelope but often we always feel a little bit underwhelmed with their products and a bit underwhelmed. And It's not necessarily just about the products they're making. It's about the promise Microsoft are always delivering, but it's also about the fact that they're constantly being disrupted. It, they're constantly having um, the benchmark being reset for them with all sorts of startups and all sorts of kind of uh, global entities. And then, I, think,
0: I think with key exceptions mm, within the Microsoft world, mm, that being Xbox and their cloud service.
1: Yeah, okay, so I'm talking about enterprise, yeah. enterprise software. But their
0: enterprise stuff. Yeah,
1: so yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, and the, the odd one, right, is Tesla. So I call this out because I find it fascinating, okay. Elon Musk got it, a master salesman, psychological mastermind. So every year he says, right, I am gonna this year ship 50,000 new uh, units, new cars, and they're gonna arrive and you're gonna love them. And everyone gets really excited. He he manages to make 50,000 each year or whatever the numbers are now. Painfully. Painfully, but he never gets them out to the customer because his supply chain and his delivery mechanics are all screwed up. But equally, so he's always setting a promise on his expectations of how customers are gonna get the service. Not a promise about the product, a promise about the service. And then what happens is he misses those. But when the product actually gets to the customer, it's so bloody good in terms of its surprise and delight and the little treats and the, eggs, the Easter eggs that are baked into the service and the experience and the digitization of those vehicles that nobody ever complains. Nobody ever calls him out on it. The media called him out of it and his stock price calls him out on it but the customer, the service they get, they forget all about it. So he sets an expectation, he fails, but yet he still manages to get away with it in terms of uh, overachieving and setting the stall out for the market. And he has to, because strategically, Tesla's story needs to stay interesting. And his interest is by pushing out, promising all these extra cars being in the market, it keeps an interesting story. So Elon Musk is a real mastermind at it, and they probably disrupt the trend that we're talking about today. There aren't many, they're kind of unicorn-like
0: he probably lives that too i mean his his move to uh disrupt his own pay structure was an yeah. interesting move as well yeah 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 so he doesn't just it doesn't it's not just the thing he gives to the consumer but it's himself yeah, it's him yeah he like a
1: lab yeah yeah <laughs> yes <laughs> like it like it a lot of that uh okay um so i mean i'm just gonna i'm gonna hand it there's one i'll i mean you know, we've all had pretty poor experiences, but in the context of what we've explained to you, has anybody else got like debtors? Who owes you a debt from an experience point of view? Um, and kind of, you know, what what really interesting ones are out there in terms of not just, you know, I promise you the product's gonna be faster or it's actually slower, but are there any other big strategic problems or services that you're offered that don't do it?
0: Could be as simple as your morning commute. Doesn't have to be complicated software that you bought. But I would assume that there's, there's everybody has something. Yeah, it surely, So feel free, telecom services. Come on, that's too broad. Name names. Come on, AT&T, Verizon. Who, who's let you down? Let's see. I will get fired. Okay, don't name names. <laughs> 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 This morning, don't say
1: anything. <laughs> <laughs> we had interestingly this morning. We had Daniel from somewhere in the APAC region who said Game of Thrones, and I was like, really, Game of Thrones? Uh, I think uh, Jose he was like, a reader. What he must have been. Do you know what I mean? He must have been like, you know, read the book, watched the film. The bit was better, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. or whatever. Uh,
0: Ryanair, we got one.
1: Yeah, 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 yeah. that kind of like That's table stakes. They just. Yeah, that's <laughs> pretty much
0: everybody would agree on that one. Anybody else? Uh, oh, Martin has a question. The Microsoft debtor assertion. The revenue is up. Forbes says their brand value is up 21% year over year from 2018. In terms of debt, I think pretty much any U.S. telecom is a mess. at Verizon, any company in the take it or leave it duopoly is garbage experience. Martin is not short on opinions.
1: That's good. That's what yeah. it's about.
0: That's right.
1: Yeah. I mean, I agree. I think that you've got to look at it, you know, Microsoft are a big organization and they do really good things. And to your point, not all their enterprise software is is delivering. Some of their more interesting products and services are. Yes. You know, and at scale, they're doing a great job. But as an individual user and a customer who values their tools on a daily basis. Yeah. You know, you got to look at that and go. Microsoft is this all all-encompassing beast. Surely their products are great. And actually, I think I think you know maybe it's subjective, but I think generally the perception is they don't quite hit the mark, especially when you stack up against well, some of their rivals.
0: I mean, I think I think the big change for them came at the at the shift in leadership hmm. uh, about a few years ago. I think that's when things started to change. I think their 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 software, um, their their software sort of uh, sensibility. Hmm is certainly lacking. But in mm. terms of business acumen, they they've definitely shifted gears and, and yeah. put some big bets on some stuff that's yeah. really proving valuable.
1: Yeah, and like conversely, it's big, you nay know, say an apple done the same thing and probably not, uh, not seeing the boon for doing it. So yeah, I mean,
0: it's interesting that Apple is actually already looking at, um, at side products. Mm. You know, they're looking at other things. I, I just read today that they're looking at creating a credit card with Goldman Sachs. Mm. So they're going into fintech. And it's interesting that they're doing this because obviously phones are not selling as fast as they used to be. Yeah. So they need to look at what else do they service. Um, well said about the transport companies, Belgium SDIB developed an app which makes it more difficult to get things online. That's <laughs> interesting. If I renew my transportation card online, I will have to wait three days. That is absolutely the opposite for it to be actually renewed. Uh, interesting. Interesting. I think there's uh, there's probably a lot of service out there in that same field. Anybody else have? Mirko, I know you have some opinions. I'm going to call you out specifically. And uh, now, now I hope he's listening. He's not just logged in. Uh, let's see. Who else? Nobody else has an opinion of a brand that's not causing pains in the butts.
1: No. Okay. where well, Should we jump? Let's keep going. Okay. If
0: they if they have pains, they let me know.
1: So this is one that I you know I've got a couple more points, and I'm gonna hand over to my esteemed colleague Lau. But you know we all suffer from this, but. At a, at a business level and an individual level, how can we avoid doing this within our organizations, within our brands? So we kind of just talk through kind of, at a very high level, kind of uh, five drivers of the expectation gap and really how it changes stuff. So I think the first one, of uh, five, and there, there is one really important one which we'll get to at the end. Um, being experienced designers, um, you'll probably pre-guess it anyway. Um, but the customer experience precedent. So we talked a lot about it in the last few minutes. Um, you know. You're you're not keeping up with your customers' uh, expectations. You're not understanding what precedents have been set in their lives in terms of what's a really great experience. Your culture not changing fast enough to be able to deal with those things. For major big businesses, it's a real challenge. Um, and investing in making sure you understand the customer walk in their shoes, or empathetic to their needs, continues to be kind of a real challenge from a lot of big businesses. The second one is kind of what we talked about again is your brand promise. Like we talk about overducing your creative work. Um, you know, we're, we, Ogilvy, one of the you know, biggest creative networks in the world. We believe wholeheartedly in customer insights and evidence-based work. But you know, often, you know, creative work takes on a life of its own and sometimes it, it delivers experiences in, a, in an engagement manner which doesn't really represent what it's like as a product and service level for a business. So you've got to be really careful that you don't put those juice and those steroids into your creative work and and make it false. Otherwise you end up expecting and extending that gap. The third one is kind of business integrations. This kind of touches on it. If If your business strategies don't line up with your technology and you're not invested in the right ways, then ultimately you're not gonna be able to you know, answer the demands of the market and ultimately you're gonna create an expectation gap because you're not gonna be providing the services that your customers are expecting from you. And connected to that is like, internal integration. So you know, in the democratization of data kind of philosophy, businesses that give like regular access to the same insights and the same data sets, so the product service teams product design teams, marketing teams are all, all designing and thinking about life from the same set of data. That's kind of really, really important. And if the product, and you know, it's the age old battle between sales and, and product teams. Sales teams want to go out and pitch something exciting. Product teams want to make something that's relevant for the audience. Product teams get frustrated with the sales teams because they promise the earth and the product team can't deliver on it. Sales team get frustrated because the product team don't make anything cool. You know, you've got to bring those functions together. And I think if you, we talked about Monza, the UK Digital Bank, a couple of slides ago, they're really, really good at that. Every one of their business units has a design lead within it, whether it's commercial team, whether it's a operations team, whether it's a, you know, whether it's a supply chain, they've all got designers that are related back to the product itself. So they keep it all really nice and nice. And, and that's easy for them because it's a small, it's a relatively small scalable system. So Digibank, but when you're dealing with big businesses, it's a harder thing to try and get right. And then the most important one for, for me and anybody that practices experience design is, is human centered design. And it line of loops back up to the original point. The having a really keen understanding of your audience from day one, constantly being empathetic to their needs, walking in their shoes, really paying attention to that is really, really, really important. And not letting your business goals out rank that in terms of the ratio by the way you go to market. So I, I'm being arbitrary with these numbers, but I would argue that, you know, in a bad world, some businesses are 70% vested in the business needs, 30% in the customer, and you'll probably see, you know, you'll see that in the work you do and the outcomes you have from the market. Now getting to 50-50 um, it's hugely aspirational, and if you go if you go 40-60, you end up being a little bit too CSR, right, you're a bit too vested in, in customer life and not really gonna grow your share price and get, happy investors. So there is a happy medium, but that one is, I think is crucial. And that one kind of unlocks all the other points as well.
0: Are these the five drivers to close the expectation gap, or were the five drivers to that?
1: So I think they're kind of, a, there's a bit of a hybrid solution there. I think these are things that you need to, things that drive, and also things that if you don't pay it, you can actually actively invest in these things and close that gap quite quickly.
0: The drivers, I would I would read that as saying these are the things that create the
1: gap. Yeah, if you do these badly, they, they're probably the quickest so way to create the gap. But
0: get right Yeah, to close yeah. The gap. yeah exactly. Okay. Okay.
1: Uh, so... I would probably had enough of my dulcet English tones, so I'm going to hand over to Lao for some dulcet Spanish tones. Yeah.
0: And that sexy picture of him. Look at that. Look at Yeah, it,
2: look it. It. A yeah that's out, it. So that was many years ago. I don't have any hair now, but my Spanish remains. Uh,
0: so, uh, Martin has a question before we move on. He says, for me, number three is always the black hole of good intention. The designers come up with great stuff and then they get totally destroyed in the lack of the most basic levels of technology investment and government transformation of the business. It's so sad to see better CX evaporate at this stage.
1: Yeah, I mean, we've done a lot. We, we um, you know, I think Dejuan himself has done a lot of work with clients in the UK and across Europe that, that highlights the business integration, the lack of investment in, in innovation is one of the biggest sins you can have. Um, you know, that's the big one of the bigger drivers. And the reason it's so prominent here is that it is the, one of the main causes of like, businesses falling behind, just not investing in, in their people and their services to deliver this stuff or, or and killing it early because it gets put in the too hard or too expensive box. Yeah,
0: absolutely, point. 100%. Great.
2: Now. right. So thank you, Deacon. Um, so now that we kind of scratched a bit of the surface of uh, what the experience gap is and how it works, I wanted to get a bit more into the specific of what can we do in order to understand it and to prevent it a bit more. Um, so if we remember the slide that Deacon presented uh, a few minutes ago where we see the expectation curve. Uh, we turn to uh, behavioral science to help us out with it. So behavioral science, we all know we can help you at many things to improve your kind of overall CX structure from a strategic level to a very tactical level. There are two biases particularly that actually we find particularly relevant to actually cover the expectation gap. And that's the negative bias and the peak end rule. And the order of those are quite important. So covering the negative bias and kind of the, nev- the the definition of what it is is the first step. It means that us humans normally care or put more significance on the negative events than on the positive ones. Uh, and that behaves, uh, but that kind of affects the way we behave, the, the take out of an experience. Uh, so in other, in other words, as an example, if somebody tells me, you know, you're a Uh, somehow a lousy presenter but a great strategic thinker and a great people manager and you have a great vision Uh, yeah exactly like they said five minutes before we started I wouldn't care so much about being a great thinker and a people leader but I will say what do you mean about a lousy presenter so that negative thing actually puts much more emphasis and is more memorable than than the positive ones and actually few studies have found that it's five to one in terms of it takes five positive experiences to offset a negative one. And therefore it makes sense to look at it first, because ideally we would like to improve the whole CX ecosystem from end to end in one single goal, but that's not normally the case. So it kind of makes financial sense to, to start by removing the negative bias. And it's not rocket science. We kind of do it intuitively, but it's not the shiniest part. So normally it doesn't get pushed. Uh, first, so in a way, going through, um, going through the, the, the ecosystem and try to understand what the mentioned a little bit. So, on every single touch point, what are the audience's expectations? What are the precedences? And what are the key friction points that can be removed? And removing those first means that you don't need to create five positive experiences to offset that. So it does make uh, even financial sense as well as having the consumer front and center. Now, step one down, let's assume then we go the extra mile, and it's about uh, kind of matching the expectation gap and actually try to exceed it. And and for that, the, the one we look at is the peak end rule. Um, what it means is that we judge our experiences uh, entirely based on the on the peak, so that can be high or that can be low, and how those how how would they end it, regardless of actually what is the quality of the overall experience. So, in other way, you get as another example you get back home and your partner tells you how was the day darling and it's not that you're going to make a quick average in your brain of what happened every hour of the day you potentially going to find out that there is a nice meeting that you had in the morning that went very well with the client and then you had a pint with the colleagues after work and that kind of makes an average of a very good day regardless of whether the other seven hours were uh torture by powerpoint or something like that uh so yes you know Keynotes, Sorry, that's that's always what I mean. Um, uh, it's more of a torture with PowerPoint and Microsoft, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Proper torture happens by PowerPoint, you know. Um, so, so, so again, we try to take the the highest, the lowest point, the way it all ended, and that gives us the, the takeout of an experience. Uh, so the expectation can be managed through that. Um, the, the, the way we try to bring it home into, into the, the CX world is try to translate, translate from behavioral to, to something that we can work with and we, we kind of use peak to, to name experiences in terms of the, why, the wow factor that they bring. Uh, and how, how much can they actually grab somebody's attention and the end of the experience is m- the longevity side of it. So try to put some flesh on the bones means that the wow experiences potentially is that experience or feature within experience exceeding expectations? Is it a novelty for the customer? Is it actually novelty within the industry or across industries? Uh, is it something surprising wasn't expected and actually is it relevant? It's not just a PR stand. And if we tick more than one of these boxes, all of the time people look at an experience and they go like, whoa, that's something that I actually uh, got my attention. And that becomes the peak. Uh, The end, the longevity of it could be more of, all right, what is the impact of that feature? Uh, over time, and is it going to be remembered, and is, can, can I come back to it so I can use it multiple times? Is it something that is going to grow or improve over time, or actually can, some, can that develop new possibilities in the future? So to me, um, I, was, uh, I was thinking the, the screen time functionality that Apple launched a while ago is something I'm still in love with. Uh, because it's quite counterintuitive in a way for, for, for a run that wants you to, to use their devices. But in a way, just that single feature ticks mo- most of the boxes of both the peak and the end. So the, the screen time, it's something that nobody saw coming. So it's a novelty and it's a novelty within all the, the, the whole category. And it's quite surprising coming from Apple. And it's definitely personal because it's how much time do you spend in front of the screen. And it's some, something that you see every day so, so again, the, the, impact spans over a period of time. Uh, you definitely use it multiple times. Have you tried to every time, every night when you try to check an email and it blocks you out, uh, improves over time cause it plays the data back to you and it does open new possibilities. So again, can you link up the screen time with the rest of the Apple health and try to correlate? So, so just that single feature epitomizes quite well, what the peak and rule will be and how to exceed the expectations, which is not new for Apple anyway. Um, so, if we take those two factors, uh, longevity and, and the wow, wow factor and the questions that I just went through, then you can start seeing how those those are not just a way of filtering potential solutions and potential experiences and road mapping them, but it's something that you can use throughout the entire kind of the design process. So in a way, you can do the research to try to unpick what are the, 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 what are the precedences and what are the key elements that make the audience. Uh, 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 kind of have a peak and an end. You can then use the same question to synthesize what are the key avenues that we think are gonna tick those boxes. They can be the trigger or the core seed of the brief when we come into the ideation stage. And it's a way to to measure whether they're working. So you can almost attach metrics and KPIs to some of them, soft and hard KPIs. So again, it's the same two concepts throughout the entire design system. design process, sorry. The last thing that it does, nece- by necessity, is it kind of complements the classic view that the clients have. So there are many variations of the e- impact effort matrix, but it always comes down to that. When you have a mammoth task, like they often do uh, to change the whole CX ecosystem on the back end of it it goes into how much it takes to get off the ground and how much do we as a brand thing is gonna change the the game. But the moment you look at the peak and end, uh, you all of a sudden put yourself by necessity in the shoes of the consumer. So what do we think is gonna be more surprising? What is gonna think is gonna have a longer effect? And if you take those two in consideration, one next to each other, all of a sudden you're a step closer to achieve what Deacon mentioned in terms of 50-50 having a consumer-centric view as well as a business-centric view. So with that in mind... uh, we do have the experience of, of doing this. Um, so we have a methodology and a framework and a way of extracting over 100 different data points that all of a sudden start to put flesh on the bones of everything that that we said, uh, everything that can be measured, avoiding the negative bias and uh, achieving the peak end rule. And, and the truth is that these can help brands uh, kind of diagnose how big is the expectation that, and what are the key forces that they need to breach and and what are the key friction points that they need to tackle first and how to come up with experiences that prevent the negative and exceed expectations. And more importantly, how can they create a realistic development roadmap that starts kind of showing results quickly from from the very quick uh, fixes to kind of trying to break the norm throughout an uh, an industry.
1: So, um, kind of just summarizing where we're at, before we kind of close out and I hand back to Dejuan for any Q&A, um, kind of just six points just to close out what we started with. So, you know, from, from a brief history of economic progress and the value customers place into things, you know, we're looking at a point of view where actually customers are thinking that satisfying experiences or valuing satisfying experiences more than products. So it's kind of a, a new thought and one that some people might find like quite disruptive. Uh, and the great expectation gap. You know, the the insight here is that you don't keep an eye on it. Your customer, your your competition are, and the reality is not keeping an eye on it means that actually your competition, in effect, are defining your customer experience for you, or or bridging the gap, but or trying to bridge the gap for you, or extend the gap for you as it as it as it happens. And then obviously the consequences of that are the experience debt and negative experience equity. You need to keep an eye on how you balance the promise and the precedence, the promise being obviously your promise to customers through your brand work and the precedence being what everyone else has set for you. Um, we gave, went through in quite detail kind of five drivers of that um, and you know the importance of those elements allows taking you through kind of the peak end rule. And I think that personally I think that the peak end rule is a, is a real tonic for brands that are struggling with this because it kind of gives you permission to be okay with the fact you don't need to get it all right. But you need to emphasise key moments that you want to be differentiated from in the service industry and an econo- and an experience economy. And then the final one, obviously, was a, a you know an unashamed plug about our services. And um, you know Lao Lau, myself, have all done this type of work. So if you've got these problems on your desk, you know how to get in touch with us.
0: Absolutely. Um, and this team is actually a global team. There is a, a very dedicated practice here in London, but this team extends from Denver, New York, uh, and, and, and the UK. So there are people everywhere that, can, that we can point you to to help you get these things uh, going. Especially a good way to start is through a CX audit. Um, and that is a great way to understand where you're at. Uh, so any questions, comments? disagreements provocations mean that we did a great job I think that you guys <laughs> did a great job oh, uh, no there no we go. oh there we got one does it ever make customers angry I've never seen a customer get angry because of a CX audit uh, usually uh, usually they're there they know what's wrong hmm. this is just a way to validate it have you ever seen a, a customer like one of our customers get angry
1: no, I think you're dead right. I think it either crystallizes the problems they know and gives them ammunition to go out and go, look, it's someone else has told me as well. Or, it, uh, is a, it, or the other side is actually, if it shows a good thing, they're like, great, because we thought, you know, usually these CX audits are benchmarked against other people. And if you're performing well, they're like, great, we didn't need to have a chance to look at the market and be understanding about position. So that's good news. And actually, that fuels the conversation further. So I don't think you ever get anyone angry because, quite frankly, in this day and age, with customer experience being on everybody's lips, if anyone Gets upset about the fact that they like feel like their CX has revealed some painful memory for them, then they're probably behind the curve anyway and are are probably going to be around a great deal longer. You know, we know that 57% of the you know, fortune 500, 57 or something like this.
0: This this point says, Why is it easier to listen to an external audit than to your own design team? And that there's a human, there's a behavioral science behind that one,
1: yeah, yeah. I mean. You know what? Look, there are, there are, there is the. I don't know what the principle is, but the reality is, it's the same relationship when you have, when you have external validation of a problem, it becomes much more real than the one you believe yourself. And and often internally, unfortunately, businesses don't have the same respect for their peers within the business as they do maybe for outlaying costs for a third party to tell them what the problem is. Um, and And I think it's a shame, right? You know, we we. We as ourselves, as a as a as a collaborative design function, you know, we work hand in glove with clients, and you know, we don't really see ourselves as an external party. We see ourselves as part of their design team. And I see the frustration on design practitioners' faces when they're not able to deal with that stuff.
0: I think there's also, I mean, there's a reason why, <clears throat> as practitioners of this in this field, we do uh, validation testing, is because we may think it's right or wrong but we wanna make sure it is or isn't. So getting another company to come in and do an audit is is part of validation. So I don't think it's necessarily always a black or white instance in which the internal team isn't being listened to. I think it's sometimes about validating those gut feelings. Um, Martin says, I had a client say, you don't understand this is how our industry works when giving them a needs improvement grade for a specific CS. It was in the insurance industry. I totally agree. Uh there is a lot of insight speak. I, I work with pharma and healthcare as well. And uh they're notoriously for saying, but you don't understand we're not allowed or we can't or we shouldn't or we or we'll get sued or there's always a, a there's always an excuse. So it part of what you're doing is showing the ultimate goal and part of selling it is showing how you get there the progress so there's sometimes it's just a question of showing small steps to get there rather than saying you have to spend a billion dollars by next week anything else thank you for those that participated thank you for those that stayed longer a little bit no no we're on time Um, and as always these will be sent to you for download and uh, sharing later on uh thank you so much and see you all next week thank you Bye bye